Hello and welcome to the Motor Mouthing Podcast. It's episode six this week, six glorious weeks of podcasting already. What I want to do is try and be nice and varied with the guests and the episodes. So, so far we've had TV people, racing drivers, an engineer, we've had people in old cars, people in brand new cars, and this week is somebody a little bit different again, a stuntman. Here he is, Steve Trulia and a car. Well, today I'm with Steve Trulia, and if you haven't heard of Steve, the chances are you've probably seen his work somewhere because he's a stunt performer, stunt coordinator, uh, stunt driver. He's been in lots of well-known TV shows and movies, Hollywood movies, Bond films, is that right? Yeah. Bond films as well. He was in the Special Forces and he's also a magician with his own West End magic show. Hello, Steve. Hi, how are you doing, James? I'm good, thank you. So um, we need to talk about the car, first of all. So this is a car that we've, we've just borrowed for the day. Can you tell me what the car is, Steve? Yeah, it's a Lexus RC with a big four-litre engine. Four-cylinder engine. <laughs> four cylinder, four so cylinder, it's two-and-a-half-litre two engine. <laughs> <laughs> the tiny two-and-a-half-litre engine but, and four-cylinders. Yeah. Yeah. I'll wait till we get moving. You should leave this in. It's fun. It might be a Yeah, I like it. Well, I'm, I'm totally dropping you in it here because... It's good, aren't you? Uh, you, only, you only got in this car about Turn two minutes ago. Turn up at my house ago. in a car. Yeah, and then immediately quiz you about the car you've never seen before. Yeah. Uh, we're in an RC Lexus. Really mm-hmm. beautiful. Sort of a deep metallic red. Uh, really comfy car, I like it. Yeah, so this is this is a hybrid, so this is a two and a half litre petrol engine and an electric motor. And I think, are we in, I think we're on in petrol mode now, aren't we? No, we're in electric motor mode. Because this we've got a good. display showing us exactly what we're being powered by at the moment. That little noise, by the way, that's the lane departure warning. So if you go over a white line... Yeah, and I thought that was what it was, but that's not very good if you like to take a nice racing line, is it? No, no, you can switch that off. What's your first impressions like? Very comfy, Mm. very quiet, um, but the steering feels gondola-like. Yeah. Slightly, slightly reminds me of some of the old Jags I've had. You know, you turn the steering wheel and then a fraction of a second later it starts to turn and then you have to correct as it starts to turn. Just feels a little bit wobbly. It's a bit spongy, isn't it? Spongy is a good word. A bit spongy and delayed. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about Jags before we started recording because you've had a couple of Jags, haven't you? Was it XJS's you? I've had loads. I've had the three XJS's and I've had about three saloon Jags. They were wow. the first cars I drove. I just loved the fact at the time when I started driving, yeah. they were relatively cheap for such a quality car. Yeah. Albeit they were knackered and they generally rusted and they caused me more hassle than was worth. Um, yeah. They were just beautiful cars. Lovely leather, wood, just great thing to drive about. And not, not great for performance, but... Um, no. Something quite unique about those old Jags, isn't there? Yeah, like a, I always thought of it as a sort of a poor man's Rolls Royce almost. You know? Yeah, I, it's the kind of thing Arthur Daly used to drive on. Um, Absolutely. Uh, on Minder. Would you have another? Would you ha- Would you get an old Jag? Mm, would, you, would you buy another one? Probably not. Or just I'm, too much trouble now. Too much trouble. If, if I was going to buy a classic car now, it'd definitely be an old American muscle car. Really? Any of a Mustang or something, one of the old, or an old Corvette, something like that. If I was going to have a, a Sunday morning. Mm drive out kind of car I'm totally with you on that I'm totally with you on we that we still got the Boss Hogmobile <laughs> yeah okay. you still got that <laughs> yeah Steve was with me when I bought my I bought a Buick in 2009 I think it was, was wasn't it? it yeah and <laughs> and it was a big white 22 foot long 1977 Buick LeSabre two door but yeah you were with me I think when I when I bought that or certainly when I was eyeing it up yeah because we found it in the back of 
Paul Bicker's yard. That's right. Bicker's action cars yard. Bicker's yeah. action cars, yeah. Which brings us neatly onto stunts, I think. You've done quite a lot of car stunts. Loads, you, most. In fact, you've done loads of car stunts. Yeah, haven't loads I, of car stunts over the years. Yeah. What kind of what kind of stuff have you done? Well, obviously, where we first met was the loop, the loop. Mm. The, yeah. Uh, that big stunt special we did for Fifth Gear. That was the. It wasn't the world's first loop, the loop. We believed that there'd been one before, or, or that there was a guy in. Was it Romania? Uh, Lithuania, I think. Lithuania, <laughs> who was who was doing loop the loops in a car like a like a Hot Wheels track. Uh, and then we did the, or you did, the, the, the world's biggest loop-de-loop. -loop. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, I looked for that online. If you search for something like fifth gear loop or yeah. Steve Trulia loop or something along loop those the lines. Loop the loop, I think you'll, yeah. Yeah, you'll, you'll find it online. And, and it's online a, a bunch of times and all the, the hits are well into the millions. Because mm. we didn't really know if, if that was going to work. I've had to explain to friends that you know, a little bit cynical about TV and things being set up in television. Mm. So that, you know, now what are we going to do? We now have got some jeopardy here. Let's introduce yeah. <laughs> some jeopardy. And um, it, was all it, real. Was, it was real. And when I first got the call from the other James. Yeah, my old boss. Yeah, your old boss. And said, um, you know, do you think you can do this? There's a guy in Lithuania that's doing this 20 foot loop in wooden loop, but we mm. want to do a huge <laughs> one. I said, how huge? He said, about 40 feet. It's about 12 meters, wasn't it? Yeah. And I, <laughs> And I said, yeah, okay. I only discovered afterwards. I said, where did the forty? Where does this twelve meter thing come from? And he said, I just made it up. <laughs> it's just twice as much as the kind of advice. So, oh right, great. No reason for me to risk my life then. Just you. Anyway. But when that happened, he said, can we do it? And I said, well, if it's physically possible, then yeah. Are you up for it? I said, yeah. Yeah. yeah let's. And it really was genuinely as the because it was tight budget, uh, tight uh, time schedule. Tight wasn't time, it? We had tight four weeks. Well. We had no. Yeah, we had no time the time to build it was the mm. time that we had to also learn what the problems were that's right pulling g's passing out potentially breaking the loop if you go too fast yeah uh, we discovered that you can't do the stuntman solution which is just put your foot down hard <laughs> because you were just out the car yeah you're bot you're spotting the car you'll break the loop because of all the g-forces the weight of the car in the loop yeah uh, you'll pass out so you have to get just the right speed too slow you fall out and die drop on your head from 12 meters that's not really survivable. And of course you can't practice it. You can't rehearse it. No, it was a one-shot deal, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a one-shot deal with a load of cameras watching you. <laughs> and then I think you took it at something like 37 miles. No, we were going to take it at a very precise speed. And then I think you might have just gone with feel in the end. Is that right? Is that what you um, did? I got, no, I think we were, we, were, we were about, yeah, 38 or 39 if I remember properly. And I remember getting the speed up to 40 and then just coming off it slightly mm. and then accelerating in which yeah. was the advice of the Lithuanian guy. Yeah, yeah, we had a mathematician, <laughs> no, uh, uh, engineer. Engineer, sorry, an en engineer, a professor of engineering from Cambridge University who came up with 37 or 39 miles an hour and seemed to be a bit, he seemed to be quite spot on in the end. It um, felt slow though, didn't it? It felt slow on. Did on, it? On, it felt slow on, know, on that big on airfield because we did it at Bentwaters, didn't we? The big airfield. Yeah, it's it quite a little thing on a big empty <laughs> space, isn't it? Yeah, I've got. A, there's a photo of me that's still from the show that I that I've kept. Yeah. Um, which shows me standing there, and it shows how tall it is because I look like a little ant next to this thing. But when you're there <laughs> and you're in this massive expanse of space. It doesn't look that big. No, it doesn't. And when you're driving it? up and you're going 39 miles an hour and you're looking around you, nothing's really moving. Yeah. You feel like you're doing about five miles an hour in traffic. I think, I'm going to die. I really want to put my foot down. And then the loop, which, which we did, which I think was 2009, then kind of 
led on to you having a career as the world's foremost loop-the-loop driver. Yeah, I got a call about a year or so after that from an agency in Holland mm. that, whose client was Shell V-Power. Yeah. Every two years there's a uh, motor show in Amsterdam mm. at a place called the Rye. REI, okay. and they called it the Auto Ryan. It's a huge motor show, mm-hmm. and they wanted to do the loop the loop, and me to do it sort of continuously. We ended up <laughs> negotiating it down to three times a day, so we do three <laughs> shows a day. It's a bit like a, a bit evil Knievel, really. And um, we built a, um, a grandstand level with the loop, so the people at the top of the grandstand would be at the centre of the loop. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And every day we went and tested this thing. We had some real near misses in testing. But we, we knew it by then, so we knew what we were doing. And the Bickers guys that had worked on the original loop, yeah. they built the new loop because um, Shell wanted us to do it in a Fiat 500, I think, because of their mm-hmm. association with Fiat. And uh, so we built a loop especially for the car that would fit the car because you don't want the overhang at the front scratching or the Yeah, back so you want the wheels right in the corners, right, don't yeah. you? And yeah, the circumference of the loop has to match that. And... It worked really, really well, but I've never been more exhausted because of pulling all those Gs, that real quick onset G. As soon as the car goes from horizontal to vertical, you're pulling sort of six, seven Gs. All of your innards are being stretched, and if you're not a fast jet pilot doing that every day, it's exhausting. Yeah, I bet. And so every every time I did it, plus the stress of if I fall, I'm going to die or be seriously crippled, um, I was exhausted after each one. I went straight back to my hotel. I saw nothing of Amsterdam. I just slept, ate drank lots of water and did the loop three times a day. <laughs> I went back and slept from, you know, sort of nine o'clock at night through till the next morning to the next loop. Wow. A How long did you do that for? A th- um, two weeks. We did, with tests, we did 40 loops. Wow. I think gone are the old days of stuntmen going, oh, that's a roof, you'll just jump off that roof. I might just put a couple of boxes down there, son. That's yeah. what the old guys were like, and they were smashing themselves up all over the place, yeah, people have broken their hips, their, you know, really? their backs, all sorts, because... What, are, you, but, are we talking kind of like 60s, 70s era? Yeah, kind of they thing, didn't or? really, yeah, 60s, 70s, 80s. A lot, a lot of people didn't come from a gymnastics background, a, uh-huh. a sports background. A lot of guys were just happy to throw themselves about. Uh, and, and maybe a lot of ex-boxers, prize fighters, those kinds of guys. Yeah. And they would just oh, have a go at that, go on then, yeah, that, no, that'll do, which is great, until it goes wrong. Your background was uh, armed forces. Right. Yeah, reservist for about 18 years. I joined the reserves, the TA as it was at the time. Mm. Um, SAS was my first unit. Um, wow. 21 SAS, um, which I thought would be a bit of an adventurer for a kid that read, used to read all those commando. My brother's 10 years older than me and he used to read these commando magazines. Yeah. And he joined the army and told me about the regiment look, before anybody knew about the SAS. Um, that was the start of my military career. I spent five years there. I left. I had two years out. And then from some sort of madness, really, I I'm really into diving. Mm. Uh, and I decided it might be really interesting to join the SBS, sort of sister organisation. Very similar, but with a very strong aquatic uh, bent, obviously. Yeah. With the, but in those days, you had to have a Green Beret for that. Nowadays, well. you just have to go and do Special Forces Selection, as it is now, for Special Forces Aptitude, and if you pass that, you can either choose to go to the SBS or the SAS. But in those days, you had a separate course and a separate... They had their own course, and also you had to be... You had to come from the Royal Marines. So I joined an Army Commando unit. I did join the Royal Marines Reserves for a short while, but they didn't really get on very well with their... You've got to do two years of training before you can go on your commando course. I found an Army Commando unit and said, well, you've just come out of the... You've just come out of 21 SAS, you can... Um, We'll send you straight on your commando course. Mm. And I went and did the commando course, all arms commando course, reservist course, passed that. 
and I was about to go straight over to the Royal Marines and join the SBS and then I thought to myself, which is a bit rude actually, I've come to this unit, they've been really good to me, they've given me all my kit, they've signed me up and said, we'll send you straight on a commando course. Yeah. And then what do I do? Say thanks, I've got my green lid, bye. Yeah. I yeah. thought, well that's not fair, I'll tell you what, I'll stick around for a year or so, no rush, I'll go and do the SBS thing, you know, I could do that in a year's time or two years time, whatever. Okay. Uh, six years later, such a good <laughs> unit, such a load of great guys, had a really fantastic time there. I ended up there for six years, part of 2-9 Commando Gunners, did some really interesting stuff with them. Became an Army PTI with them, uh, got my American para wings with the US Marines, the Gold Wings. Uh, just really, really cool time wow. and did really good exercises, really good training. Um, and then in 94, um, I cross-decked to TSBS, did that course, got in, qualified as a swimmer canoeist. Um, and spent six years there. And I left in 2000, just before the war started. Oh, right. So it was kind of an odd thing, because for people nowadays, you see reservists now, they've all got a rack of medals because they're out and about fighting all over the place. Well, yeah, that's but we true. we never went to war. We didn't have an opportunity to. So that was it, a really interesting time. Um, and part of me wishes I had gone and done what I'd trained to do. And then I see people that have lost limbs and stuff and think, you know, yeah. that could easily have been me. I've had a been really lucky to have had a healthy life so you know there's not much you can do about it in hindsight so it's just glad I didn't have to go and kill anyone if you want the honest truth yeah no absolutely I've I've met a lot of people now that have troubles you know from mild to extreme post-traumatic stress disorder hard guys you know strong really strong hard guys that are a quivering mess at times that have nightmares that have violent outbursts that you know, lose their marriages, break down, and stuff like that, yeah. uh, because of the horrific things that they've seen. This is a touchpad here, which has got a certain amount of kind of feedback to it. So yeah, if you run good. your finger over that and go go left to right, uh, oh, using you, this, sorry. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. It kind of it gives oh, it you clicks. that little. It, you get a click when it. Yeah, yeah this little kickback oh, thing. That's clever. To let you know, so and that operates the, the menus on the sat-nav and so on and so forth. Are you enjoying this car? I am enjoying it. Because we, we, we went up some windy roads there. It's, you not, know. it's not a driver's car, but it's, it's a sporty, comfortable, maybe executive car. Yeah, it's, it's quite a, a little windy road. quite comfy sort of cruiser, I suppose, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I like it. But you couldn't go rally driving in it. <laughs> you could, it'd end up in a ditch. Well, you, you probably could. But, um, I'd definitely end up in a ditch. <laughs> really? I rolled more army Land Rovers unintentionally <laughs> than I think anybody ever did in the regiment. Really? It became a bit of a standing joke, yeah. Really? Was, and then well, you went in... on to be a stunt performer, yeah. doing precise things with cars. Exactly. Uh, and I did, did a bit of junior motorsport in Formula Ford 1600 and Formula First. Okay. I had a very brief dabble in Formula Forward, which was a... Oh, yeah, Formula That was the old... Um, it was a, a kind of a... This looks a bit like wings and slicks. Well, it is, but it kind of isn't. A Brands Hatch, I don't know if they still do this, but the Brands Hatch series of schools um, used to run open days that you can go and drive. You, you do a little course, basically. You rock up. I went to do one of these courses and just got completely hooked. Uh, you go on a course where uh, a, dry, a racing driver takes you out in an XR2i, it was then, mm-hmm. nice. a Ford Escort, and, um, and takes you round the Brands Hatch club circuit. And I think you could do it at Alton Park, and you could, that was their circuit at the time, and yeah. uh, Snetterton, wherever else. They're all part of the same yeah, group same now, group, I don't know yeah. if they were back they then. They were then, yeah. And he'd take you out for a drive and teach you the racing lines. More importantly, what happened is you kind of reset your brain to um, starting to get 
a feeling of a car in a four-wheel drift because you're going to the first, come down the straight, yeah. big right-hand turn there at um, at um, Brands, yeah. and the car is literally four-wheel drifting. It's sliding out towards the rumble stones, and you've got this tire wall there. And the first time you do right. it, as a passenger, you go, oh, I'm going to die. You think the car's going to roll. Of course, it doesn't. You start realising that. And, of course, as soon as your eyesight, yeah. your brain realises that, once you get in the car, you drive yeah. a little bit faster because you realise that, and you start learning what you can do to make that go horribly wrong, <laughs> what you can do, <laughs> yeah. you know, just with your accelerator. Again, you know, if you lift in the corner, you make the car heavier at the front. It's like when you brake, the car dips forward. If you just lift, then you're making the back light. Mm -hmm. And if the back's light, it's gonna, it depends on what you're doing, but if the back's light, it's gonna slip out more because there's sideways pull on the car and you're gonna be an oversteer. And you just learnt it. I mean, you learnt it in the, in the XR3i and then the instructor would let you go round. And the good thing about that is he's in the passenger seat. So he's telling you, look, slow down a bit. Okay, okay. you know, over to the right here. So you, you know, you're coming down the straight. There's a, there was a black patch on the tarmac. You look for the black patch, there was a little hut thing um, at, just before the hut. When you get to the color of change of tarmac, that's where you start braking. Brake until you get to the 100 meter line, if I remember correctly, and start turning in. They put a cone on the, the point of the racing line. So yeah. you want to just go right across to that, close to that, and then start drifting out. You learn to unwind the steering when you came out, because if you hold it tight, if you're on a right hand bend and you hold the steering tight, mm -hmm. you're putting a lot of sideways force on the wheels. You're, you might cause the car to slide more or to oversteer or understeer, but more importantly, you're scrubbing speed. And what you don't want to actually do is turn your wheel to the left. But as you come out, if you do turn your wheel to the left, you come out so much faster. All these little right. tricks, little sort of okay. racing driver tricks. And no. I just went back, I spent a load of money doing it. And then I start, then I booked time testing in not school cars, but proper race prepared cars as much as they can be, which were, they hadn't been bashed and bent and twisted by people crashing them. So they were really nice and great, good condition. New tires and everything, fantastic. Yeah. And um, I got to within about half a second of the lap record at, um, at Brands nice. in the club circuit um, in one of those cars. Nice. And, um, and I actually did that in a school car, not in a prepped car. Wow. And uh, so I thought, oh, I can do this. You know, I've got a bit of a bend for this. This yeah. is good. Uh, then I had a crash, which hit my ribs badly. I had a really bad side smack and really bruised my ribs. Nothing, nothing hospitalised or anything, just cracked ribs. Okay. Um, winded. And I was doing a lot of sport at the time, heck of a lot of sport. And it really became evident to me, it was round about the time, I think it might be just after that, that Johnny Herbert had his crash. Right, yeah. Um, at Brands. And um, it's crushed all his, both his ankles, didn't it? Really bad accident. Yeah. And I started becoming aware of doing 125 miles an hour down the straight at Brands, um, being in what is like a canoe, you know, with my legs out in front of me, I can't bend my knees more than a few inches. And a load of just one inch kind of metal tubing mm. welded together here and there. If, I, if my brakes failed completely at the end of that, I'd go straight into that tire wall and the, me and the car would all be about three foot shorter. Yeah, um, wow. And I so valued my health at the time, I was training so hard. It was really interesting psychologically just that awareness of the danger mm -hmm. dropped my times. My time really? I can slower. I was looking, I was asking, what's going on? Why am I slower today? I must be something to do with the track. Maybe so it's a you're, not, you're not even consciously. Not consciously. I was going for it. But yeah, yeah, really. And I realised that if, if that's going to affect me, then motor racing probably isn't for me. When did you get into performing stunts? When did um, that come I joined the stunt register in '96. 
Okay. I was actually still in the SPS at the time um, as a reservist. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of why I left, actually, because the business started picking up and I started getting more work. And I realised I couldn't do both things at once. I started popping up on TV and my boss called me in and said, um, just seeing you on the TV <laughs> show as a villain. Really? Like thief takers or something. I don't remember what it was. Ah, yeah. He said, then they were the firing a machine gun. What on earth are you doing? I said, well, I've just joined the stunt register. I've just become a professional stuntman. He said, you can't keep doing that. And then I got a little article in a magazine somewhere or a local paper or something. He said, someone else is holding this up. He said, Steve, make a choice. You know, do that or do this. You can't do that and this. And because of my motor racing background, I got a shout straight away on Tomorrow Never Dies. Really? Was that one of your first? That was my first stunt job. Wow, and that's a pretty big uh, first job, isn't it? Yeah, and they and they got me driving one of those black Range Rovers that were chasing um, Bond through the Bangkok streets. And the other guy was a guy called Val Musetti, uh-huh. who's an ex Formula One racing driver of yesteryear. Mm-hmm. Valentino Musetti. You might want to look him up. He's a people listening. It's a, a great guy, and uh, he's driving one car. And I think I think some of the other stunties were a little bit. Not nose out of joint myself. Like, hmm, can you drive in that Range Rover? Well, I don't know. Maybe because I put my motorsport stuff down on my list of skills, you know. Well, yeah, and, I imagine so. Yeah, I think it was just giving me a tryout, you know. That's first ever job. Second jobs, um, Saving Private Ryan. Wow. Pretty much at the same time, I did a night. I did one night shoot on Bond, and the next, the two days later, I was in Ireland on the opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan. I thought it was just quite good. Yeah, like I just tried to start register. Was that in the same year? Yeah. So that's that's probably the two biggest films of the year. Yeah, there, I would have thought. Yeah, that, that is amazing. Exciting. What did you do on um, on Saving Private Ryan? Um, I just worked on that opening sequence. There were loads of us. What was the opening sequence of, of that film? It was the beach landing scene. It was, yeah, yeah. the beach landings. Yeah. And so they found a beach. They wanted to use a beach that was the same as Omar Beach, that looked the same. Right. And had the same sort of relief, the same cliffs and everything, because we were going to build the, the pill box that was there. And uh, they found in County Wexford in Ireland exactly um, the, the beach that was exactly the same. Wow. So we went out there to film it, and it was June. Steven Spielberg was being so meticulous about authenticity. Yeah. And we had gaiters on, which are like canvas things that go around your ankles. You get them now for walking if you're going to go muddy, peaty, boggy stuff, and you don't want to get mud in the top of We were playing American and German soldiers at the same time, loads of us. And um, they had to be laced up, but they were really intricately laced on the side. It took ages to lace them. And I said, I got into costume, and I thought, this is mad because I'm wearing knee pads because I'm going to be falling on the floor. <laughs> I'm wearing hip pads, and I can't take them off without taking these gaiters off because they don't unclip, they just they come off the end of the foot, the ones okay. I had at the time. And I said to Wardrobe, can we, um, costume, can we, um, can we kind of cut these and just stick a bit of Velcro in? With a bit of super glue, stitch it in. You know, is there any, I'm happy to sew it myself. And she's like, you're choking, what my job's worth. I said, why? She said, Spielberg sees that, you go mental. I said, no one's ever going to see that they're not laced. You just glue some laces on, can't you? She said, God, you're new to this, aren't you? I said, yeah. She said, no. <laughs> you know, he's that meticulous about having everyone wearing the right stuff. Because all of the troops on D-Day, they'd all got off the uh, landing craft and stuff, and the guys had come from America, and they'd been practicing and training in the UK. Mm. So the American troops had all come across. They were all pasty white. Because and, they've been in Britain. Yeah, because and, it, and because it was it wasn't a sunny time. You know that that June of D Day wasn't sunny. It was overcast day as well. Okay. So what they didn't want was us sitting around in between takes, getting a suntan, getting redder and redder, and looking like a load of cherry faced. You know, like we've just stepped off a beach somewhere because it, it yeah. really. If you look at the pictures, everyone's pasty. They weren't suntanned. So we had to have factor, God knows what, 
sun cream on and just sitting around with all this gloop on us and sweltering, drinking, just drinking water continuously and not weeing because we were just sweating so much. It was just coming straight Oh, yeah, yeah. Horrendous. Became acquainted with squibs, the explosive charges that they put on. And again, there's really clever squibs that uh, blow front and back with a slight time delay. So you're holding a button in your hand that goes up, the wire goes up the sleeve. You're running along at the point that the machine gun fire, which has got a load of squibs in the sand next to you, as they catch up to you, yeah. you squeeze yours and hit the deck. Yeah. And it takes, it's in a sequence, once you click it, it goes ba 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 bang. You get two or three shots across the front and the a split second later, the shots across the back. Wow. And they've got a steel plate that goes next to your skin and they blow outwards. So you imagine though, that's an explosive charge and it's enough, they tear the costume anyway, put blood, little blood sacks in to split out. So you've got all this, pack, all this stuff packed on you. Yeah. Uh, but if that went off by mistake, so no mobile phones, da, 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 that went off by mistake near somebody that's facing you, they're gonna get a face full of that muck, bits, maybe bits of metal from the detonator, whatever. And so you can't stand near anybody. So what they'll do is, they'll, the special effects people were rigging us up with this stuff. And then, be like, oh, it's lunchtime. All right, you have to go, go and sit under that tree. So you go sit under a tree trying to get some shade on your own like a leper you know and then and there's another mate that's sitting right over there you can't talk to him because he's too far away trying to shout to you they just give up in the end and people come and bring you your dinner and just put it on the floor about six feet in front of you really? going, mate, yeah or at the side of you here's your dinner mate bye and I've got you a, I've got you a drink as well thanks a lot I'll just sit here and eat this in case it goes off by mistake so. and if it did go off would that be a, a oh, lot of do, resetting. Yeah, but they, they just put someone else in. They take you out or leave it. And oh, put they someone just else take in. you out. Yeah, they yeah, take yeah. you out and put someone else in. But and sometimes you'd be there half the day, and then they still wouldn't use you for that. And go, well, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, go and get yeah. desquibbed, and then you'd have to stand around for ages while special effects came and took all that, all the kit took, off. Took it all <laughs> off you. And then you've done a lot of TV as well, haven't you? You've done yeah. lots of a lot of the British TV, Hollyoaks. Yeah, loads. Casualty, I was stunt coordinated on that. I started performing on it. Ended up stunt coordinating for years. Actually, did a lot of the really big sequences. Yeah. A big skydiving sequence. Um, bl- we blew up the dog. You blew pub. up the dog. The dog. Dog pub. It's a pub. Oh um, right. I don't, sorry. I don't watch. I've never ever watched an episode of Hollyoaks. Uh, but they're a lovely lot. <clears throat> and my biggest stunt was on Hollyoaks. My first ever job on Hollyoaks was a, a high fall. It was actually billed as a hundred foot high fall. It turned out to be less than that, but it was more. Hundred foot. And backwards. It was a <laughs> and it was horrendous job. I wouldn't do it again. Was that like off a building? Yeah, it was off a building um, and off a ledge um, on okay. a corner of a building. So a ledge that was sticking out. And when, when, if you're jumping off a building and you're on a ledge or on a window frame, mm. you know where straight is in front of you because you've got a straight building on either side. Even your peripheral vision, you can see the wall. Okay. So you know where backwards is. Okay. If you get onto a pointed corner of a building, especially if there's like a little ledge, yeah. you know there's like ledges that go around building, an old sandstone yeah, yeah, ledge. Yeah, yeah. Especially okay. standing on the edge of that with your feet, that it's only probably two centimetres thick there and it's been there for like 200 years. And I'm thinking freeze, thaw, I've got concrete, whatever it was, 80, 90 feet beneath my feet. You know, just pavement and the airbags out that way. And I've had to judge on how far I'm going to push myself out for the trajectory of going and how I'm going to keep my body upright so I don't end up on my head because the director wanted it to be completely backwards, like a dead crab, which is the hardest fall you you can do, blind. were Were you supposed to be a dead person? Uh, no, I was supposed to be somebody that fell off. They had a character who was, he was a, turned out to be a serial killer. I think his name was Toby or something, the character. And he, um, we're going back to the 90s here, he, um, 
he's trying to he's on up on this ledge on a roof and he's trying to get to his wife he's trying to kill her or something he's trying to murder her and he climbs past someone else on this ledge and loses his balance flaps his arms about and falls backwards um, so I asked the director I said can I twist out of this do you mind if I can't twist out because if I go backwards and twist at least I can see my airbag and judge my landing I'm thinking to myself and he yeah. said um, no I'd much rather you stay back to earth he said because I've got a really nice shot of one of the other cast members walking down the road she looks up the camera sh- look, shoots up past her and sees you fall right through frame wow. if you twist it will spoil that shot I won't have it and I really like it and that was definitely the toughest physical job I've done was it? yeah and I think the loop was the most... Well, I think it was definitely the most dangerous car stuff that I've done. Was it? What, yeah. other, what other car stuff have you done? Oh, loads of stuff. Turnovers. Did a great one in a, in a transit van. A really good one. On downhill, so it really rolled. Mm. Flipped. They're fantastic fun. <laughs> really? Um, and um, I don't know if you were involved in that, but we did, we did this whole behind-the-scenes thing on fifth gear didn't we do you remember that uh yeah 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 there was all those you know how how hollywood works kind yeah. of thing yeah so there was kind of a strand of those and you were you were the resident stuntman really yeah as i drove a car i drove a car under a lorry if you remember you that's that a one? nice one though. great I, one i wasn't that was that was before my time and then we put really vicky cool in the car made it look like she did we showed how we did it how i did it and then put her in to make it look like she did it we yeah did a little sequence chase sequence and we did a lovely car turnover mm. again we i cut her up in the car whatever she cuts me up and the car flips but in reality it's a cannon roll yeah. one of Bicker's lovely cannons the most yeah. reliable stunt cannons in the world in my opinion <laughs> totally never ever 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 have I felt unsafe with any of Bicker's stuff and the, the thing I did for Shell um, I was a bit disappointed actually we did that job it was so lovely and all of the heads of Shell from all the different European countries came Germany Italy Spain whatever they all really enjoyed the shows and mm. we were going to, like a lot of these jobs, always moot what's going to happen. You know what we're going to do next. Shell wanted to do one at each of the Formula One shows. So right. up in the middle of the track. Okay, cool. And um, a certain man that runs those shows. With a, with did, a loop? Yeah. Do, doing the loop? Yeah. yeah. Um, would have been fantastic. Um, it would have been good. Yeah, and the main man, who we all know who that is, um, decided he didn't want it. He, didn't, he thought it was a bit too... Too over the top, a little bit too distracting. It's not very Formula One, I've got to no, say. It's quite NASCAR or yeah, American I suppose. Sports. Maybe that was what he thought, but you know, he could he put the kibosh on it, which I was mm. quite disappointed about because it'd been lovely travelling with Formula One it around the world yeah. and doing a load of stunts. It would have been really cool. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, you never know. I mean, you still are the world's foremost uh, loop the loop <laughs> guy. So, well, that means I'm the loopiest stuntman in the world. Uh, yeah, I've got you, a bit. You actually, might be the loopiest man in the world. Well. Uh, talking of that, in a way, um, I've got a bit of a complaint actually. A complaint? Yeah, because you know, when you get asked, you're gonna you're gonna do this car share with James. I'm expecting James Corden. I thought we we're gonna be doing karaoke. <laughs> what do I get? Like you, you know, what, this is a complete con. <laughs> there's no singing. There's no karaoke. I've, gi- I've given you a Lexus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lexus Cheers. sports car. Thank you. Oh, you're, giving, you on you're the, giving me it then. Got I you on keep the insurance. It, can I? I'm keeping it then. I'm well, you, you can keep it till tomorrow if you like. Okay. It has to go back tomorrow. <laughs> um, and you get to drive around the Epping Forest. Just, uh, it's, well, it's, it's good to kind of hang out, isn't it? And that's great, mate. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a very long time. Nice to I've done probably more body burns than any other. Yeah, I've seen a lot of picture of you on fire. Yeah, I've done a lot of those. Always see pictures of you on fire. Yeah. Um, is that are they are they particularly tough or? The, yeah, they're um, there's a primeval fear that we naturally all have about fire and being near it, 
And if you've been really close to a big bonfire, you might feel just a little twinkle of that when it starts to get hot and you oh, just step back a bit. Yeah. Well, imagine having flame on your person and you can't move away from it. So the first time, I mean, no, no stunt coordinator in their right mind would ask somebody to do a full body burn first time because they might well panic and freak out. Okay. Um, the first time I did it, I had a bit of fire on my leg, back of my leg. Right. And again, you kind of want to move away from it. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't, it comes with you, of course. And then when you've got someone on your arm and the wind blows a bit of it in your face, then it gets really, you want to panic. So learning to suppress that and calm that down. I think if you're a scuba diver, I've done quite a lot of free diving, breath hold diving. It's the same thing. When things go a bit wrong, you need to calm down rather than flap or okay. you're going to die and okay, you have to yeah. learn to suppress that you okay. do it a lot as a stunt performer anyway you have to learn to suppress that yeah. some do it better than others some people still flap and shake and still get the job done some flap and shake and don't get the job done some are calm and get it done mm-hmm. yeah there's a bit of everything in there but um, that's kind of interesting and uh, fire is always it always gets your attention when you've got flames in front of your face You've got a mask on, perhaps you've got protective goggles, you've got a silicon mask, whatever it is. Yeah, but you're bet. covered in flames. If you breathe in, you're going to die hot. Gas in your lungs is going to, you're not going to be saved from that. Wow. Um, if you breathe that, that, all of that hot, that hot air into your lungs, at that hot it would burn. And you've got flames with the kind of accelerants and stuff that we use there. Um, you've got flames that are hot enough to melt tin. You know, if you put a tin of baked beans on your back and left it there for 20, 30 seconds, it would melt the tin. It's really, really hot. And the fireproof clothing only keeps it, the heat from transferring for a, a period of time. Okay, so you get, you get really hot? You get hot if you leave it too long. The thing about, uh, about stunt burns is if you, if you do the bravado thing and you carry on when you're already starting to get some hot spots somewhere that, that's burning you, yeah. When you stop, it carries on travelling through. And can um, you? So can can you breathe whilst you're? If you've got a full body burn, full body burn, you you've got you a couple of in. options. Yeah, some you can use some air. You can use a, a demand valve system, very similar to scuba diving. Um, I don't like to. I never use them. There's a big problem with them that if they run out of air, because like any scuba diver will mm. tell you, or any diving instructor will tell you, you get someone new and get them underwater, they'll be gobbling up air at twice the rate, three times the rate that an experienced diver will. Right, okay. Is that <laughs> kind of like the panicking Yeah, thing well, again? just nerves, basically. A bit more nervous, so you're breathing more. When you're relaxed yeah. in the environment, yeah, you're yeah, breathing yeah. less. Simple as that. Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, as a diving instructor, you would look at a pupil, check their air regularly, and see how much they're gulping. It will give you an indication of their mental state, and also, you won't, you won't, they won't get a nasty surprise of, oh, I'm nearly out of air and I need to come up. So, um... That's not good because if you do run out and you gobble all your air up in this very small cylinder that you have, then you've basically got nothing and something in your mouth that's stopping you, so you can't even breathe through the material properly. Mm-hmm. So you can get into a proper panic then. Yeah. Get out of air and you've got nothing you can't breathe. So yeah. um, that has caused a few um, interesting situations for people in the past, especially in America where they like to use it. The other thing you do is you put a tube in the mouth that pops out the front. The guy that got the world record. Um, about two minutes, ten, as it was back in, oh, I don't know, back in about ten years ago, whatever it was. I was mm-hmm. going to break that record, actually. I trained to break that record, never got around to doing it. Um, what, the longest, longest, longest body burn. burn? We were going to do it for ITV, the Guinness World Record Show, but the 50th anniversary, but they, they decided I was, they wanted me to do the fastest abseil down, of, uh, over 100 metres down centre point instead. Okay, uh, because they thought they just didn't, the head of, T, of ITV said he wasn't comfortable with um, somebody being set on fire uh, before the watershed, the kids watching it, and uh, what if this person okay. dies live? 
they wanted to do it live. I said, yeah. And they said, well, what are the risks? I said, well, it is risky, but you know. And they said, well, no, we don't really want to be yeah. pulling a mask off you and your dead body or burnt, melted face, you know, on TV. Fair it's just too risky. So can we do something less risky? But anyway, that's the thing. You could use a tube. The guy that had the record I was trying to beat used a tube mm. so that he's that the air that he would breathe in was a little bit out of the flame. And the other thing which we should talk about, one of your other kind of ventures which seems to be doing incredibly well is your magic. Magic? That's almost your job now, isn't it? It you, is. You, you do that for a living. I do uh, it for a living, but I only do it one day a week. So you've got a show, haven't you? Yeah, I set up about three and a half years ago. I started a one-man show uh, in the West End. The idea was it'd be an upmarket event in mm-hmm. a smart venue. So we're in a nice five-star hotel, the Courthouse Hotel on Great Marble Street. And I wanted people that weren't sitting in the front row to be able to see it the same as the people sitting in the front row. And the only way to do that is to put a camera on your hands, an overhead camera, <laughs> and project it onto a screen, which is the scariest thing as a magician, I can tell you. It's so scary. Because what, the, what, having uh, an intrusive camera in the special the, secret camera, area? No, no, a camera above your head, looking down on the table when you're performing sleight of hand. Because oh, if you see. make the slightest error, yeah. the slightest glitch, everyone's going to see it because it, it's... Your, your, There's nowhere the, to hide, is No, there? the cards are, you know, a metre high on the screen. <laughs> you know, I'm interested in gambling cheating. I love the whole gambling cheat because it's underground, it's dark. You know, yeah, you've got yeah. mafia, you've got gangsters. Yeah. There's sorts of people that play poker games in hotel suites, um, in top hotels and stuff, where hundreds of thousands of, of pounds are being... Yeah, it's, on quite, it's quite glamorous and dirty at the same time. It is, it? it's glamorous, and you know, just like in any Bond film in the casino, you know that the sorts of people that gravitate towards that life are generally, it, there's a lot of villains. And as a magician, I got into card magic, and I, I really don't, I don't care much for coin magic and a lot of the other classic styles of magic, as they call them. Um, but I really, really became passionate about card magic. I love the deck of cards. I love the fact that it's almost like a, it's like a sort of a modern version of tarot cards. They've almost got the little characters, and uh, you've got these 52 yeah. little individual pasteboards, these little pieces of artwork almost, uh, and you can do remarkable things with them with sleight of hand. And I got into that, really, really into it, and then branched off, uh, as some card magicians do, into a fascination with gambling cheats because we do it for entertainment, a magician will do it for entertainment, but a gambling cheat risks their life. If you're paid by someone to be in a game or you're just working for yourself, as it were, yeah. and you've got some moves that you want to do to give yourself an advantage in the game, if you get that move wrong, it's not just like, oops, I made a mistake. It's, you know, you've got concrete boots and you'll be in the bottom of the Thames. Absolutely. So, um, and that whole world attracts really interesting characters. And my whole show is telling the story of those characters through history from the sort of medieval times through to um, the West, Western times and Wild Bill Hickok, who was a, a really well-known um, gambler, hardened gambler. Yeah. A lot of people believe he was a gambling cheat. The cards that were in his hand when he died was heading him for a, you know, for a full house, which he kept pulling good hands out at some point in his career. And people were going, hold on a second, you just, that doesn't happen in poker. But who's going to tell Wild Bill Hickok, fastest gun in the West, he's a cheat? You know. So he did he die or he died playing cards? Did he? Oh, very much. Well, no, yes, he got shot in the back of the head while he was playing cards. Yeah. And then he had he had a really amazing hand. Well, he, had, he had he had two black jury. eights and two black aces. Okay. So two pairs, but we don't know what the the fifth card had fallen on the floor 
and historians have been trying to find out forever if anyone got a glimpse of that car, but nobody did. But he was clutching two black apes and two black apes. So to this day, that's still known as the dead man's hand. Oh, is that where that comes from? That's the dead man's hand, Uh, because it was in Wild Bill Hickok's hand as he lay dead. When I put the show together, I wanted to make it a show about those characters. And there were enough of them to choose from that you could use the characters that actually told the story. When did people start using mechanical cheating devices? When did that start? Okay. And there's a story that goes around that with a fantastic guy. So there's a history. Uh, there's a history really. thing history really to with it. Stories tying it all together. Uh, but certainly not dry history because it, there's fascinating characters. I'll show people what some of these characters did, the devices they used. Um, there's lots of really hopefully people will find quite stunning close-up magic so close-up sleight of hand that people go what on earth how is that possible a lot of if you look at our twitter um on our twitter um, feed you'll see people go what how does he do that that's that kind of stuff that is really sharp at the sharp end of that which has taken me years of practice to learn and there's a bit of everything there's some films in in it some short films like we tell the story of wild bull hickok there's a few things in there about con artists and how they use psychological advantages um, to predict our behaviour and use that to con us okay, yeah. and pickpockets. And some of that is it's entertaining, but it's also protective because it opens people's eyes to what's possible. We do a bit about street hustles in the show. Um, there's quite a lot in it. It's an hour and 15 minutes of pretty much, that's me driving a manual. I just oh, did you go mode. for the clutch? I went for the clutch. That's why I put Steve the brake on quite hard. quite <laughs> hard then with his left foot. <laughs> What's this guy doing? I, um, I, I only left foot brake in an auto if I'm driving like a psycho. I quite like left foot brake. I like, yeah, it's good fun. I, I, but I didn't mean to. I thought that was my clutch thing. I yeah, I was driving. No, no, no. I've yeah, got an no. auto and a manual, actually, which is kind of weird. And I switch between the two and it freaks my head out sometimes. It does, yeah. It is confusing. Um, have you ever had a left-hand drive car? Uh, yeah. That's, that, that can, like, that can just... just, just the only thing I find difficult with them is always go to the wrong door to get in. Or if you've ever been abroad for a long period of time and you're used to getting in the left. I had a 944 Porsche, black 944 convertible Porsche S2 mm. in the 90s. I, I like those. I was doing reasonably well at the time and I thought I'd go, no, silly, I just blew a load of money on this car. <laughs> I just wanted a nice car. It's such a waste of money, I wouldn't do that again like that. But anyway. Brand new? Uh, no, but it was nearly new. It was only okay. a year or two old. It was just stunning. Black, grey leather interior, yeah, black yeah. roof, really beautiful. Yeah, and I've been down to the south of France, and I've been knocking around down there in it, um, around Monaco, and had a girlfriend that lived in uh, Villefranche-sur-Mer. We had a great time down there. I was driving the car around everywhere. I drove all the way down there, around the, the, um, the Les Alpes-Maritimes above, went in the, the long way instead of going on the motorways. I yeah, went, yeah. went up the windy roads with all the cyclists, and. Uh, into Monaco, great, really great fun. And uh, we're hanging out with Julian Lennon at the time because he lives down there and he was mate. She was, there's a little entourage of Brits there. And we were yeah. going out to dinner with him, it was quite great fun because he always paid for all the drinks. And nice. We were in that Jimmy's bar and stuff, buying sort of 300 pound rounds for sort of six people. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, stick it on you the were tab. on top, really? Yeah, it was great fun. It was really, we really living the high life. And I had this blood, this lovely, um, this lovely black. Um, 9-11. In fact, a quick story there. I, the first time I drove into Monaco, I was meeting this girl um, who became a girlfriend. She wasn't at the time. We were doing some business together. And she said, I'll meet you in the, um, in there's a little restaurant there opposite the Café de Paris and the, re- the you know, the casino, the square there yeah, in Monaco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the Hotel de Paris on one side. And there's, a, there's a, just open stores, uh, an open kind of... Um, what do you, what do you want sort to call of it? Sort of fresh air cafe, sort of, yeah, you know. Outside. Um, yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah. Thing, yeah. yeah. Um, 
alfresco kind of area there. Yeah. And she said, I'll meet you there. And um, I noticed there were a couple of cars parked on that square. There were big blocks on the square. People just parked their cars. I've got this nine black. I've just had it washed in, in, in Monaco itself. I had a car wash in there and they waxed it all and got all the dust off from my drive-in. Yeah. It was all immaculate. I'm wearing a navy blue silk shirt, wrapped round black sunglasses, nice. and a pair of black trousers, pat slacks uh, and shoes. <laughs> And I park up, and loads of tourists will start taking photos. Really? <laughs> they're going, oh, this must be movie star. Tick, tick, tick. They're all flashing away. So I just look at them and do this. Wave that hand up. <laughs> Did you? Thank you. Wave at them. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm smiling. So I walked over. And she, what was all that about? I said, I don't know. They obviously thought this is someone important. They're all taking photos. So I just wait. Why are we waving at them? I said, well, just carry on the illusion. That's so <laughs> It's funny. quite fun, actually. That's really funny. But I came back to the UK. I was going to a party for someone. It was a it was a birthday party somewhere, and I was really out in the stick somewhere, looking for this old country house. And I went into a driveway, and it wasn't the right place. I came out. Imagine a road just like this. We're in a really essy, twisty road at the moment. Okay. And I've been in France for about six or seven weeks, and I'm driving on the right-hand side of the road in the UK, totally unaware that I'm doing it. Yeah. And I'm driving quite fast, and I come around a right-hand bend car ahead of me, I brake, he brakes, car behind him brakes, no one hits anybody, he's like an inch off my bumper, swearing and shouting at me, full of adrenaline. I'm swearing and shouting at him, we've got my roof down, you know, what on earth do you think you're doing? Did you think he was in the road Absolutely, I thought we were, I thought, well, you nutter! And then I saw another car, and then it dawned on me, and I was like, he, oh, I was man. like, right. I, I leant out the window, I said, as I drove, I said, I am so sorry. What do you think you're doing? The guy was like, I said, look, I've just been abroad. I'm really, really, <laughs> I've been driving and I'm so sorry. He said, you're going to kill I said, I know. I was like, wow. Oh, that man. easy. That That's, is, oh, it's oh, easily done, especially oh, if you're not in a city. No. We should uh, have a quick, so you've been in this car now for quite a while, well over an hour. Yeah. Um, well, how, how, how do you feel about the car now? You, have you been enjoying it? Yeah, back's a little bit sweaty from the leather seat. Yeah, it's got seat coolers actually. It's oh, one of my good. favourite things on a car. Oh, I've never had a car with. I've had a, the first time I had a car with heated seats. It feels like you wet yourself, doesn't it? Yeah. Sort of warm still feeling around your crutches, like yeah. Yeah, I still don't quite got used to those, but you like the looks of it. I love the looks of it. I think it looks fantastic, actually. I love the lines. It's comfortable to drive. It's easy to drive. This is nice, the electric steering wheel that lifts electric up. Steering. But the steering's not so good. Okay. Yeah, it's not a sports car, is it? It's not a sporty no. car, even though it, I think it's pretending to be one. Yeah. Visually. That's the car. Should we go okay. and have a tea? We're out in Epping We're Forest. We're going to have a cup of tea At then. the green tea hut that's just been saved in the <laughs> same family for 80 years, hopefully saved from being uh, um, sold on to the highest bidder. Okay, come on then. Well, I'm going I'm to press stop now, so... I'll just end by saying thank you very much. More than welcome. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you. Steve there with the Lexus RC300H. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're interested in checking out Steve's show at the Courthouse in London, then have a look online or on Twitter for The Card Shark Show. And that's it for this week. I'm on Twitter at motor underscore mouthing if you want to look me up. And I hope you come back next week for episode seven.